Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we're back. We're doing it again. Nathan is less sleepy again. than he was last week. That's we're right. doing two again in a week. We're we're <laughs> we're we're getting this back. We're not gonna we're not gonna release two in a week because we're not psychos. Come on. We, oh, we're back in the saddle again. But we're we're Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Mm-hmm. And this book that we're reading is Black Reconstruction. We're starting on the second paragraph of page three forty-eight. On the other hand, so far as the Negro was concerned, almost no exceptions were admitted. It was easier to traduce him. Yeah, traduce that word that we all know. Traduce <laughs> him because time. <laughs> research time because everyone was ready to believe the worst and no reply was for the moment listened to. There was no single great black leader of reconstruction against whom an almost unprintable allegations were not repeatedly and definitely made without any attempt to investigate the reliability of sources of information. Oh, just defaming people for for no reason. Yes. So that fits because the definition of traduce to make false or malicious statements about someone in order to cause humiliation or disgrace. MLK before we decided to rehabilitate him. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> you got to find what you got to rehabilitate them later. But at the time, you traduce them, guys. Traduce. Start using it on Twitter. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, I I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be like, look, the U.S. always traduces their. In- God, I can't even pronounce it. Traduces <laughs> their official enemy. <laughs> <laughs> I like traduce better. Um, for the first time in national history, interstate migration became a crime. Hundreds of thousands of Southerners had gone north and west and had been welcomed and integrated into the various states despite their divergent ideas and alien heredity. But when there came a comparatively small number of Northerners into the South, they were reviled unless they conformed absolutely in thought and action with a dead past. The Northern whites were of many classes, former soldiers and officers lingering in the South in connection with the Army or the Freedmen's Bureau or as investors and farmers. They were reinforced by an army of men who came south with small capital and in many cases succeeded in making their fortune. Most of these had no especial love for the Negroes. They had come into a white man's war, and now that the Negro was free, they were perfectly free to use him and to organize his industrial and political power for their own advantage. Many of these were agents for capitalism. Don't you, though? Many of these were agents for capital and went down from the north with something of the psychology of the modern investment in conquered or colonial territory. That is, they brought the capital, they invested it, they remained in charge to oversee the profits, and they acquired political power in order to protect these profits. Banana republics. On the other hand, there were teachers who came down from the north, army chaplains, social workers, and others who wholeheartedly went into the new democracy to the limit. Extraordinary persons stood forth in this role, like General Fisk and Erastus, Erastus Kravath. All right, Erastus Kravath, you're in the running for coolest name that I'm going to read this paragraph. That is fucking awesome. That's a, that's a good name. At Nashville, Edmund Ware at Atlanta, General Armstrong at Hampton, and dozens of others. They were crusaders in a great cause and meticulously honest. Naturally, their numbers were comparatively small. They reached primarily students, teachers, and preachers among the Negroes, and only incidentally the class of field hands. So it was a battle. Erastus Kravith and his awesome name was one of the co-founders of Fisk University, which is uh, an HBCU in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say it's the HBCU in Nashville. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, It was a battle between oligarchy whose wealth and power had begun based on land and slaves on the one hand, and on the other, oligarchy built on machines and hired labor. The newly organized industry of the North was not only triumphant in the North, but began pressing in upon the South. Its advance guard was represented by those small Northern capitalists and office holders who sought to make quick money in raising cotton and taking advantage of the low-priced labor and high cotton prices due to the war famine. The labor on the market, instead of being owned like the slaves or excluded from competition like the poor whites, suddenly found itself bid for and offered not only money wages, but political power and social status. The bidders had no realization at first how high their labor bids were in the southern custom. They were offering something below the current price of labor in all civilized lands. The northern United States, England, France, most of Germany, and parts of Italy were giving labor some voice in governing in a money wage contract. To the plantation planner, such a wage contract was economic heresy and social revolution. It was blasphemy and eternal damnation to them, and they fought by every conceivable weapon, political power, social influence, murder, assassination, and systemic lying. 
The mass of poor whites were in an anomalous position. Those of them who were intelligent or had during slavery accumulated any capital or achieved any position had always attached themselves in sympathy and intent to the planter class. This meant that the mass of ignorant poor white laborer had practically no intelligent leadership. Only here and there were these men like Hinton Helper who were actual leaders of the poor whites against the planters. The poor white was in a quandary with regard to emancipation. He had viewed slavery as the cause. Hinton. Oh, yeah. Hinton, buddy, I really, really, really love that you were an actual leader of poor whites against the planters. We need more of you. Next time, don't have a name that makes you sound like Hamburger Helper. Damn it. I was trying to avoid the Hamburger Helper reference, but there it is. There it is. It's there. It's there. H Helper. Old H Helper. He's He, he was old really H just helper, a man. The, the great spoon-wielding big white, white glove against the plantation big class. white gloves against the planter class. <laughs> He had viewed slavery as the cause of his own degradation, but now he viewed the free Negro as a threat to his very existence. This is the poor whites, not Hidden Helper. Hidden Helper's good. Okay, yeah. Suppose that freedom for the Negro meant that Negroes might rise to be landlords, planters, and employers. The poor whites thus might lose the last shred of respectability. They had been used to seeing certain classes of the black slaves above them in economic prosperity and social power, but after all, they were still Negroes and slaves. Now that freedom had come, poor whites were faced by the dilemma of recognizing the Negroes as equals or of bending every effort to still keep them beneath the white mass in income and social power. David, take it away. (laughs) Here and there, certain leaders appeared among planters, among the more intelligent of poor whites, and even among the masses who looked forward to political combination and economic alliance with the Negro. Such persons, the Southerners called scalawags, but they were in fact the that part of the white South who saw a vision of democracy across racial lines and who were willing to build up a labor party in opposition to capitalists and landholders. They were therefore especially to be feared and were endlessly reviled. They were forced into certain extreme positions as compared with the carpetbagger and the planter. Men like Hunnicutt of Virginia asked not only political rights, but full social equality for the Negroes and taunted planters and the carpetbaggers when they did not dare advocate this. And so, I mean, again, you're looking at the situation where black people had just been freed from this brutal reality of being indebted into someone essentially owning you, right? They're chaining you up. They're, they're whipping you. They're ripping your family apart and selling literally them. Literally owning you. Literally, not essentially. Yeah, literally, literally owning you. Okay. Literally owning you. And, and then as soon as you're freed from that, here come the Northern capitalists and they may not be chaining you up and whipping you, but they're putting the debt in indebted and all of these white people that might've been your allies because they hated the same planter class all of a sudden hate you because now, Oh my God, no one's below me. What am I going to do? I'm not on top yeah. and no one's below me. What, what's, what there is there left besides being on the bottom. It's just, it's a <laughs> horrible, horrible fate. Um, yeah. When Andrew Johnson said in his veto of the reconstruction bill, March 2nd, 1867, the Negroes had not asked for privilege of voting. The vast majority of them have no idea what it means. He was exaggerating. Negroes had <sighs> was certainly he though? voted. Was he though? Was he exaggerating <laughs> or did he really believe that? Because Andrew Johnson, ladies and gentlemen, not a great guy. Negroes had certainly voted, not only in the North, but in South Carolina in the 18th century, and in North Carolina, Louisiana, and Tennessee in the 19th. They had asked to vote in the South repeatedly since emancipation. The difference that now came was an indefinitely larger number of Negroes than ever before was enfranchised. Suddenly, and 99% of them belonged to the laboring class. Whereas by law, the Negroes who voted in the early history of the country were for the most part property holders and prospective, if not actual, constituents of a petty bourgeoisie. When freedom came, this mass of Negro labor was not without intelligent leadership, and a leadership which, because of former race prejudice and the present color line, could not be divorced from the laboring mass, as had been the case with poor whites. The group of intelligent free Negroes in Washington, Richmond, Charleston, and especially New Orleans, had accumulated some wealth and some knowledge of group cooperation and initiative. Almost without exception, they accepted the new responsibility of leading the emancipated slaves unselfishly and effectively. Free Negroes from the North, most of whom had been born in the South and new conditions, came back in considerable numbers during Reconstruction and took their place as leaders. The result was that the Negroes were not, as they are sometimes painted, simply a mass of densely ignorant toilers. 
the rank and file of black labor had a notable leadership of intelligence during Reconstruction time. It was, however, a leadership which was not at all clear in its economic thought. On the whole, it believed in the accumulation of wealth and the exploitation of labor as the normal method of economic development. And why not? They had gotten rich from that. That's, it's the only way you can see it. Yep. Uh, but it also believed in the right to vote as the basis and defense of economic life. And gradually but surely, it was forced by the demand of the mass Negro laborers to face the problem of land. Thus, the Negro leaders gradually but certainly turned towards emphasis on economic emancipation. They wanted the Negro to have the right to work at a decent rate of wages, and they expected that right to vote would come when he had sufficient education and perhaps a certain minimum of property to deserve it. It was this, among other things, that was the cause of the tremendous push towards education which the Negroes exhibited. On the other hand, their desire for economic enfranchisement for real abolition of slavery had been affronted by the black coats. They were scared and hampered in the very beginning of their freedom by these enactments and by the way in which these and other laws were executed. The government replied before the death of Abraham Lincoln with government guardmanship in the shape of the Freedmen's Bureau. This bureau never had a real chance to organize the function properly. It was hastily organized. It had to use the persons at hand and on the ground largely for its personnel. It had, at first, no government appropriations. No, appropriations. I just missed a chunk. Uh, (laughs) No government appropriations, and in the end, only limited appropriations, and it was always faced by the probability of quick dissolution. It was surrounded from the beginning by the spirit which enacted the Black Codes. Southerners were desperately opposed to it because it stood between them and the exploitation of labor towards which they were impelled by their losses and the high price of cotton. They had been allowed to exploit and drive black labor after the war. Many Southerners, despite their losses, could have partially recouped their fortune recoup their fortunes but here came an organization which demanded money wages of employers who had no money and demanded the modern treatment of labor from former slave drivers so again you're seeing you know there's two components you see in every liberation struggle right and it's education i mean you see huge expansions of literacy and education anytime someone's liberated and of course a a forceful protection right i mean so anytime you hear authoritarianism well it's necessary. You've got to defend your class interest against reactionaries. That's, yeah. that's what you have to do. Uh, almost every time. Almost every time. Uh, beside the Freeman's Bureau and before it, there was the chance for Negroes to seek the advice of their former masters. And in many cases, this was willingly and wisely given, particularly in the case of masters ready to assist a new economic regime. But it was hindered by several considerations. First, any new union between former masters and Negroes was rekindling the old enmity and jealousy of the poor whites against any combination of white employer and the black laborer, which would again exclude the poor white. The planter, therefore, had to be careful of any open sympathy or cooperation with the black laborer. So now you have these people that are motivated to dehumanize these people that they used to own. And even when they accept loss, they've got to fear the poor whites not getting jealous of it. So there's also motivation working against the few that slipped through the cracks. Um, already his rank had been decimated by war and his social status threatened by poverty. Then too, insofar as the black labor was guided by the Freedmen's Bureau, by Northern philanthropy and by Northern capital, he brought upon himself the bitter enmity of the former master. So that on the whole, while there was considerable advice and help from the former master in the long run, it did not and could not amount to much. Then, too, we must must remember that these former slaveholders did not believe that Negroes could advance in freedom. They knew, of course, that some could. But even if these could, how could white men and masters cooperate with them? The whole trend. How did I lose it? The whole trend of teaching had been that this was utterly impossible. If Negroes succeeded and insofar as they did, it would lead straight to social equality and amalgamation. And if they did not succeed, it would lead to deterioration in culture and civilization. The real economic battle, then, lay finally in a series of attempted compromises between planters, carpetbaggers, scalawags, poor whites, laborers, and Negroes. First, the planters moved toward the political control of Negroes to fix their economic control. This, the poor whites had, of course, feared, and their fears were voiced repeatedly by Andrew Johnson. Many people in the North looked upon this as a possible and threatening answer to the enfranchisement of blacks. 
the co- the combination was frustrated because the carpetbaggers offered the Negroes better terms, offered them the right to vote and to hold office, and some economic freedom. When this economic freedom looked toward landholding and higher wages, it could be accomplished only at the expense of the employing class, and so far as Negro labor accepted, as it had to accept the offer of the carpetbaggers and scalawags, it alienated the planters, and not only that, but it frightened the poor whites. Here again, as in the case of slavery, there was a combination in which the poor whites seemed excluded unless they made common cause with the blacks. This union of black and white labor never got a real start. First, because black leadership still tended toward the ideals of the petty bourgeoisie and white leadership tended distinctly toward strengthening capitalism. The first move which rearranged all these combinations and led to the catastrophe of 1876 was a combination of planters and poor whites in defiance of their economic interests and with the use of lawless murder and open intimidation. It was a combination that could only been, have been stopped by government force, and the army was the only one, the only, that only had been stopped by government force. And the army, which was the agent of the federal government, was sustained in the South by the organized capital of the North. All that was necessary then was to satisfy northern industry that the new combination in the South was essentially a combination which aimed at capitalistic exploitation on conventional terms. The result was not the withdrawal. The result was the withdrawal of military support and the revolutionary suppression of not only Negro suffrage, but of the economic development of Negro and white labor. It was not until after the period which this book treats the white labor in the South began to realize that they had lost a great opportunity, that when they united to disenfranchise the black laborer, they had cut the voting power of the laboring class in two. White labor in the populist movement of the 80s tried to realign the economic warfare in the South and bring workers of all colors into united opposition to the employer. But they found the power which they had put in the hands of the employers in 1876 so dominated political life that free and honest expression of public will at the ballot box was impossible in the South, even for white men. They realized that it was not simply the Negro who had been disenfranchised in 1876. It was the white laborer as well. The South had since become one of the greatest centers for exploitation of labor in the world, and labor suffered not only in the South, but throughout the country and all over. Can um, can we just take this last page and just take it around to like every white person we know and just like read it to them angrily? <laughs> I mean, I don't know another way to read that page other than angrily, but yeah, no, we could probably try. It, it might take a little bit. I know a lot of white people, um, but uh, but man, we we can give it a good shot. Maybe we publish it on the internet and hope that everybody listens to it. <laughs> what kind Curious of idiots would do that? What kind of psychos would do that kind of thing for fifty episodes? This is, of course, the fiftieth episode of Black Reconstruction <laughs> in America. We are nearing the one-year anniversary of Black Reconstruction in America. Holy cow. Curious and contradictory has been the criticism and comment accompanying this great controversy and the revolution of 1866 to 1876. Floods of tears and sentiment have been expended on the suffering and disillusionment of the slave baron, while the equally great losses of the northern and southern labor have been forgotten. And above all, the plight of the most helpless victims of the situation, the black freedmen, has been treated with callous and hardened judgments, cemented with hate. The northern businessman has been has justly been accused of being motivated during this period chiefly by greed and profit. But the profit and greed of the slaveholder, which caused the whole catastrophe, and of the planter who forced an unjust and still dangerous solution, has been sicklied o'er with sentiment. In all this, one sees the old snobbery of class judgment in new form, tears and sentiment for Marie Antoinette uh, on the scaffold, but no sign of grief for the gutters of Paris and the fields of France, where the victims of exploitation and ignorance lay rotting in piles. The South, after the war, presented the greatest opportunity for a real national labor movement, which the nation ever saw or is likely to see for many decades. You're right. Mm -hmm. Yet the labor movement, with but few exceptions, never realized the situation. It never had the intelligence or knowledge as a whole to see in black slavery and reconstruction the kernel and meaning of the labor movement in the United States. After Lincoln's assassination, the General Counsel of the International Working Men's Association under he's back, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) Karl Marx, sent an address to Andrew Johnson. 
After a gigantic civil war, which if we consider its colossal extension and its vast scenes of action seems in comparison with the hundred years war and 30 years war and 23 years war of the old world, scarcely to have lasted 90 days. The task, sir, devolves upon you to uproot by law what the sword has felled and to preside over the more difficult work of political reconstruction and social regeneration. The profound consciousness of your great mission will persevere will preserve you from all weakness in the execution of your stern duties. You will never forget that the American people at the inauguration of the new era of the emancipation of labor placed the burden of leadership on the shoulder of two men of labor, Abraham Lincoln, the one and the other Andrew Johnson. I don't enjoy Marx trying to defer to Andrew Johnson. Mm-hmm. It makes me upset. Does not feel good. Doesn't feel good. David, In start reading. 1865. September, another address over the signature of Marx declared boldly, Injustice against a fraction of your people having been followed by such dire consequences, put an end to it. Declare your fellow citizens from this day forth free and equal without any reserve. If you refuse them citizens' rights while you exact from them citizens' duties, you will sooner or later face a new struggle which will once more drench your country in blood. See that I like better. Yeah, that's that's good Karl Marx. We're happy to that get good Karl like, back. That feels like he's doing the right thing there. Mm-hmm. The National Labor Union of Workers was organized at Baltimore, Maryland, August 20th, 1866. There were 60 delegates on their banner and it was inscribed, Welcome to the Sons of Toil from the North, East, South, and West. An address was issued in co- on cooperation, trade unions, apprenticeships, strikes, labor of women, public land, and political action. As to the Negroes, the union admitted that it was unable to express an opinion which would satisfy all, but the question must not be allowed to pass unnoticed. The Negro worker had been neglected. Cooperation of the African race and system, systematic organization must be secured. Otherwise, Negroes must act as scabs, as in the case of the colored caulkers imported from Virginia to Boston during the strike of the eight-hour question. So there should be no distinction of racial nationality, but only separation into two great classes, laborers and those who live by the other's labor. Negroes were soon to be admitted to the citizenship and the ballot. Their ballot strength would be of great value to the union labor. If labor did not accept them, capital would use the Negro to split white and black labor, just as the Austrian government had used race dissension. Such a lamentable situation should not be allowed to develop in America. Trade unions, eight-hour leagues, and other groups should be organized among Negroes. Here was the first halting note. Negroes were welcome to the labor movement, not because they were laborers, but because they might be competitors in the market. And the logical conclusion was either to organize them or guard against their actual competition by other methods. It was to this latter alternative that white American labor almost unanimously turned. There's the problem with labor movements in American history. This was manifest at the second annual meeting in Chicago in 1867, where the Negro problem, don't like hearing it called that, was debated more frankly and less successfully. The president called attention to Negroes whose emancipation had given them a new position in the labor world. They would now come in competition with the white labor. He suggested that the best way to meet this situation was to form trade unions among Negroes. A committee of three on Negro labor was selected. The Committee on Negro Labor reported that having the subject under consideration and after having heard the suggestions and opinions of several members of this convention, pro and con, they had arrived at the following conclusions. One, that while we feel the importance of the subject and realize the danger in the future competition in mechanical Negro labor, yet we find the subject involves so much mystery and upon its so wide diversity of opinion amongst our members, we believe that it is inexpedient to take action on the subject at this National Labor Congress. Next, resolved that the subject of Negro labor be laid over until the next session of National Labor Congress. The report of this committee brought a whirlwind discussion which lasted through the whole day. The Negro will bear to be taught his duty and has already stood on his ground nobly when a member of a when a member of a trades union did not like to confess to the world that there was a subject with which they were afraid to cope. This very question was at the root of the rebellion, which was the war of the poor white men of the South who were forced by the slaveholders into war. In New Haven, there were a number of respectable colored me- mechanics, but they had not been able to induce the trades unions to admit them. Was there any union in the states which admit colored men? The colored man was industrious and susceptible 
of improvement and advancement. There was no need of entering any discussion of the matter. There was no... There was no necessity for the foisting of the subject of colored labor or the appointment of a committee to report thereon. The blacks would combine together by themselves and by themselves without assistance. God speed them, but not let the whites try to carry their shoulders. Time enough talk about uh, admitting colored men to trade unions and a Congress when applied for admission. Whites striking against the blacks and creating an antagonism will kill off the trade union unless the two be consolidated. There is no concealing the fact that the time will come when the Negro will take possession of the shops if we have not taken possession of the Negro. That sounds fucked up. (laughs) If the working men of the white race do not... conciliate the blacks the black vote will be cast against them the capitalists of new england now employ foreign boys and girls in their mills to to the almost entire exclusion of the native board population they would seek to supplant these by colored workers little danger of black men wanting to enter trade unions any more than germans would try to join the english societies in america the whole question was finally dodged by taking refuge in the fact that the constitution invited all labor now there is a pretty striking statement, right? That's this is what we call class reductionism, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's yeah, here. It's here. If there is one thing that has stopped all liberating struggles for all workers in America, it is racism, right? It is whether it is one, uh, wanting to uphold the colonial uh, settler structure of the United States against indigenous people, or whether it is, is anti-black racism that, that America is <laughs> drenched in, as you see in our faces right here in the labor organization, um, or whether it's, you know, American chauvinism and, and imperialism and disregarding the needs of the global South, uh, for our own comforts and our own beliefs of us as consumers rather than as laborers. If that's a separate thing and not just a ploy to make us think like capitalists for our own comforts. Um, whatever it is, racism has driven and destroyed every liberating movement for workers. And of course, you know, I mean, half of these workers belong to these organized gr- or marginalized groups, right? I mean, workers are trans, workers are black, workers are women, workers are indigenous, uh, often multiple of these things at once. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, workers can workers from the global south are every bit as much workers as us. So every half just of the American population of workers belong to marginalized groups. But then let alone you have the entire global south. Uh, and every time this racism, you know, collapses it. So it is important to see that this is one labor struggle and we're united in it together. And the primary contradiction is capital. And until you end capitalism, there is going to be no liberation. But that's because capitalism is the economic expression and reinforcement and recycling recycling of colonialism and that draws us towards imperialism and you have to end colonialism and end imperialism and end capitalism all in the same struggle and that includes a direct fight against you know racism and so class reductionism ignores all those other factors and goes well since class is the primary contradiction that's all that matters and you can see that's just a way to enforce racism and then feel like the victim as a worker. And it does not yep. help anyone. It is the death knell of struggle. Silvis, president of the International Labor Movement, spoke out in 1868 on slavery. Whatever our opinions may be as to intermediate immediate causes of the war, we can all agree that human slavery, property and man, was the first great cause. And from the day... From the day that the first gun was fired, it, it it was my earnest hope that the war might not end until slavery ended it. So, what the war might not end until slavery ended it? Okay, I, yeah, I, just, I the, guess the, the phrasing of that was weird. Yeah, it's phrasing weird, but I guess it means the emancipation yeah. of slavery. No, it made, yeah. Um, the, but when it when the shackles fell from the limbs of the from the limbs of those four millions of blacks, it did not make them free men. It simply transferred them from one condition of slavery to another. It placed them upon the platform of the white working man and made all slaves together. I do not mean that freeing the Negro enslaved the white. I mean that we were slaves before, always have been, and that the abolition of the right of property in man added four millions of black slaves to the white slaves of the country. We are now all one family of slaves together and the labor reform movement in a second emancipation proclamation. I, Nathan, don't love that Mm -mm. paragraph Mm -mm. at all. Mm -mm. 
don't because don't enjoy it. Yeah. Don't like it. Yeah, because it's it's right to understand that it's the same struggle, but it's equating the struggle, and it, it's the it's not the, it, it's not an equivalent struggle. It's it's, it's not, and it's it doesn't have to be. No, it's different components and aspects, and and hardships of the same struggle, but it, it, they're they're very different, and there's so many other layers that that come. Not only was it much worse under slavery, um, and he's right, they didn't get freed; they they got sent into exploitation, um, which because of of what slavery, you know, Marx equates labor as the new as the new equivalent to slavery as a, a move forward in the new, um, I suddenly can't think of the new base, right. in his base superstructure yeah. model, right. Is the new base under the contradiction. So it's equivalent to slavery in that sense. And that you have the, the masters and the subjects and you have exploitation, but that doesn't make it the same as chattel slavery. No. And, 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 and you don't need to make them the same to make no. your point. And because of the material conditions that do matter, again, we are materialists because of the material conditions of colonialism and of that chattel slavery that existed and of the racism that arises from it, even after that emancipation, just as we see today, the struggle while intertwined and while different aspects of the same struggle is not equivalent. No, it's not. In the meeting of the National Labor Union in New York in 1868, there was no mention of Negroes. But in 1869 at Philadelphia, among 142 representatives, there appeared nine Negroes representing various separate Negro unions and organizations. This pointed a way out, which labor eagerly seized. Contrary to all labor philosophy, they would divide labor by racial and social lines and yet continue to talk of one labor movement. Through this separate union, Negro labor would be restrained from competition and yet kept out of the white race unions where the power and discussion lay. A resolution was adopted saying that the National Labor Union would recognize neither color nor sex in the question of the rise of all labor, and the colored laborers were urged to form their own organization and send delegates to the next conference. We don't respond. We don't recognize race. Uh, By the way, you people of your other race, you go to your own unions. (sighs) One big union. Except yours. Except yours. (laughs) Except yours. You go do that. You go to the black unions. The Negroes responded and declared that all Negroes wanted was a fair chance and no one would be the worse off for giving it. Isaac Myers, their leader, said the white laboring man of the country have nothing to fear from the colored laboring men. We desire to see labor elevated and made respectable. We desire to have the highest rate of wages that our labor is worth. We desire to have the hours of labor regulated as well as the interest of the laborer as to the capitalist. Mr. President, American citizenship for the black man is a complete failure if he is prescribed from the workshops of the country. Mm-hmm. In 1869, the General Council of the National Working Men's Association sent a letter signed by Karl Marx to the president of the National Labor Union. All right, Carl, give me give me a good one here. The immediate tangible result of the Civil War was, of course, a deterioration of the condition of American workingmen. Both in the United States and in Europe, the colossal burden of public debt was shifted from hand to hand in order to settle it on the shoulders of the working class. The prices of necessities, remarks one of your statesmen, have risen 78% since 1860, while the wage of simple manual labor have risen 50% and those of skilled labor 60%. Pauperism, he complains, is increasing in America more rapidly than population. Moreover, the suffering of the working class are in, are in glaring contrast to the newfangled luxury of financial aristocrats, shoddy aristocrats, and other vermin bred by the war. Still, the Civil War offered a compensation in the liberation of the slaves and the impulse which it thereby gave your own class movement. Another war, not sanctified by a sublime aim or a social necessity, but like the wars of the old world, would forge chains for the free working men instead of sundering those of the slaves. Okay. Yeah. So he's saying, yeah, he's saying don't create a new war on your division with with the Negro labor. You're unified with them. So we're good with that, Mark. You know, like we know, we know know you're getting the correlation. You're seeing things have gone worse, but trust us, that's just from national debt of war and the fact that the ruling class always puts that on the poor. That's not from the Negro laborer. They're your friends. Don't create a a false struggle with them. It's not going to help anyone. Nope. Silvis, the president of the international labor movement, acknowledged this letter, but said nothing about slavery, confiding himself to attacking the moneyed aristocracy. Again, reductionism. Mm -hmm. 
Thus, American labor leaders tried to emphasize the fact that here was a new element. New not in the sense that it had not been there, it had been there all the time, but new in the sense that the Negro worker must now take account of, both in his own interest and particularly in their interest. He was a competitor and a prospective underbidder. Then difficulties appeared. The white worker did not want the Negro in his unions, did not believe in him as a man, dodged the question, and when he appeared at conventions, asked him to organize separately. That is outside the real labor movement, in spite of the fact that this was a contradiction of all the sound labor policy. As the Negro laborers organized separately, there came slowly to a realization the fact that here was not only separate organization, but a separation in leading ideas. Because among Negroes, and particularly in the South, there was being put into force one of the most extraordinary experiments of Marxism that the world before the Russian Revolution had seen. That is, backed by the military power of the United States, a dictatorship of labor was to be attempted, and those who were leading the Negro race in this vast experiment were emphasizing the necessity of the political power and organization backed by protective military power david on the other hand the trade union movement of the white labor in the north was moving away from that idea and moving away from politics they seemed to see a more purely economic solution in their demand for higher wages and shorter hours iris stewart spoke for men who labor excessively robbed of all ambition to ask for anything more than then will satisfy their bodily necessities. Will those who labor moderately have time to cultivate tastes and create wants in addition to mere physical comforts? But Stuart was not thinking of the Negroes and only once barely mentioned them. That we rejoice that the rebel aristocracy of the South has been crushed. That we rejoice that beneath the glorious shadow of our victorious flag, men Men of every clime, lineage, and color are recognized as free, but while we bear with patient endurance the burden of the public debt, we yet want it to be known that the working men of America will in future claim a more equal share of the wealth in their industry creates in peace and a more equal participation in the privileges and blessings for those free institutions defended by their manhood and on many a bloody field of battle. Not a word was said of Negro suffrage and the need of labor to vote. Black and white, if the demands of labor were to be realized. Indeed, at the very time that Southern labor was about to be enfranchised, Northern labor realized that the right to vote was l- meant little under the growing dictatorship of wealth and corporate control. It meant little difference what laws were made as long as their interpretation by the courts of administration was dictated by capital. Some proposed, therefore, to fight their battle out directly with the employer on one on one battleground of economic bargaining with strikes, violence, and secret organizations as methods. So, I mean, this is kind of important here too, because this is essentially, yeah. it's, it's doing two things, right? Cause you, you're now seeing you're, I mean, we alluded to it before and we know by this point, Du Bois is, is, is in Marxism. Um, early on, we weren't really sure if he was, you know, showing some of his, talented 10th old self or the Marxist new self in the book. And, and clearly the Marxism shine through, but it's really coming out in this chapter. And it's important because it's seeing how racism stumped all of the labor liberation in the United States. Right. I yeah. mean, as we know, it's has happened. I mean, we've seen that we, we talked about it with black bullshit, but we talked about it, you know, with any look into American history, it's, it's very, very obvious. Um, and this, so this kind of takes on, almost a letter to the Gotha program character, right? Where, you know, a little bit things are being said by the labor union where it's like, Oh, that sounds very Marxist to someone who's not knowledgeable, but to anyone who's, you know, read Marx or to Marx himself or to any, you know, later follower of Marx, it's like, did you do the reading dude? What the fuck are you talking about? You're coming, <laughs> you're getting it's all about labor. You know, I mean, it's, it's very much the problem with, um, with, uh, anarcho-syndicalism right um or or the idea of of just you know minor communalism is you're taking the politics out of it right it's a base the economic base is the builder of the superstructure right but that economic base is upheld is overturned revolutionarily into a new economic base and is is seen through the superstructure all through politics i mean everything is politics right and so all of these economics are the drivers of politics but you can't resolve this economic political problem 
on just economics. It's a political problem. You have to engage in politics. That's why we have to engage in revolution, right? And so when you take yourself away from the politics and go straight to the economy, and that's, of course, they're doing that to shield their own racism and to not engage with the racism. So they have to run from the politics to do that. And when you do that, you lose all of your power. Okay. If you engage in politics and you don't understand the economics, most especially the class interest of it, then you're going to, to, to fight an aimless fight. You're going to fight yourself into a hole you can't dig yourself out of. But if you try to fight for economics and you don't engage in the politics, you don't focus on the politics and you don't focus on the contradictions at hand and emancipation and liber, or, well, I say emancipation because we were this way, liberation. <laughs> And, and, you know, all of the groups being freed and the end of, of racism and marginalization in these groups within your group, right? If you don't focus on those things, then your movement is absolutely nothing. And that's why, you know, when we talk about things like agitation, the reason it's agitation and your goal isn't just a raise in wages, right? Your goal isn't just like a raise in the minimum wage or more vacation hours or stuff like that. It's an opportunity for political education. It's an opportunity to understand organizing and teach people interests and get a political political education out there is because all of the power is in the politics of these things. And so you have to have a political understanding. You have to have a political engagement. And it has to be all-encompassing of all of the contradictions, of all of the forms of oppression. If you don't liberate everyone, you don't liberate anyone. Yeah, 100%. Concur. The National Labor Union veered from consumers and producers' cooperation into a fight to control credits and capital afterward through the Greenback Party into an attempt to gain these ends by manipulating money. With falling prices and unemployment directly after the war and rising prices and normal employment in 1868 to 1873, labor leaders became increasingly petty bourgeois and turned their backs on black labor. Farmers organized the, the Grange... The Grange? Mm, yeah? Sure. Okay. Farmers organized the Grange, but not for black farm tenants and laborers, not for struggling peasant proprietors among the free... Not for struggling peasant proprietors among the freedmen. The Knights of Labor did not turn their attention to Negroes until after 1876. The Knights of Labor? Shit. Why don't we have any cool <laughs> name organization like that? Seriously? Come on. <laughs> Knights Templar, uh, but for labor. But for labor. Uh, there was, too, no reproachment between the liberal revolt against the big industry and northern labor. Horace Greeley, a pioneer of labor leaders, drew little labor support. The labor leaders went into labor war in 1877, having literally disarmed themselves of the power of universal suffrage. And thus in 1876, when northern industry withdrew military support in the south and refused refused to support longer the dictatorship of labor they did this without any opposition or any intelligent comprehension of what was happening on the part of the northern white worker labor and negro history illustrate these paradoxes for instance in 1869 there came up the, the celebrated case of lewis h douglas the son of frederick douglas who worked in the government printing office but was not allowed to join the printers union how do you not allow frederick douglas's kid douglas. to join your union jesus christ yep rather than face the question the matter was postponed for three years and all sorts of excuses <laughs> given this and other cases led practically compelled the Negroes not to form not only separate local trade unions, uh, but to work toward a separate national organization. That's White what you want. Or- you want to definitely split your organization. And again, this is not blaming the, mm-hmm. the black union men for trying to do this. This is the, no, that, they had you're to. doing what you sh- you're doing yeah you're responding yeah. to the conditions that you're presented with but good on you white union for for because it's definitely in your interest to want to split your power yeah you um, should never you should never on the basis of of the the outward appearing structure of something judge it you know like not all protests are good not all books are good type thing right not all splinter groups are good but generally speaking splinter groups split very often for just causes so they're in the right for doing that. It's on the group that caused them to have to splinter for that just cause. Yeah. It's it just infuriating. Yeah. White labor was organizing to fight against the new industrial oligarchy, which was growing in the North. 
but it was the same oligarchy which in its own self-defense had forced the South to accept Negro suffrage, allying itself temporarily with the abolition democratic movement in the North. Um, By the way, Grange um, is a barn. Just, oh, good. Just so you know. I, I don't know why it was capitalized. The barn. I don't know what uh, that is. I mean, it might be a very important barn. <laughs> the ultimate barn. I don't know. <laughs> the Uber barn. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, oh, no. Here's another. There's a also a country co-op called The Grange. So I wonder if that's it. That's it. That's got to be mm-hmm. it. Okay. Um. This placed the white and black labor movement in a singularly contradictory position. The alliance of black labor movement with the Republican Party was simply the political side of economic fact. The Republican Party had given the black man the right to vote. This right to vote he was going to use to better his economic and social position. To oppose the Republican Party then was to oppose his own economic enfranchisement. On the other hand, the white labor had allied themselves with the Democrats, chiefly because the Democratic Party had opposed the Know-Nothing Party. The anti-foreign immigration movement was now the only organized political opposition to the great industrial forces formed by the Republicans in the North. So that's isn't that nice that that really yeah. their alliance with Democrats, of course, you know, is the, the plantation owner aligned. But white labor was aligned with the Democrats based around the fact that they were anti-immigration and yeah. that that was explicitly the labor side of things until like civil rights movement days yep it represented in some degree and voiced the radical demands of the west for low tariff and cheap money but it was at the same time violently opposed to the new enfranchisement of black labor in the south these two sets of facts alone put white and black labor in direct opposition and because their leaders did not altogether understand the basis of this opposition it made the attempt to achieve a common platform for white and black workers exceedingly difficult especially when the anonymous the position of the Northern Negro worker has take was taken into account. Negro leaders naturally resented the attack made by white labor organizations on the Republican party, nor did they understand how far this new Southern labor government was dependent on Northern industrial reaction and capitalist oligarchy. Northern labor was equally ignorant and did not dream that in the South, the Republican party was par excellence, the party of labor. This matter came to a crisis at the meeting of the National Labor Union in Cincinnati in 1870. A number of Negroes were present in the meeting, including Isaac Myers, Josiah Weirs, and Peter H. Clark. John M. Langston was to speak, but the party labor leaders opposed him because he was a Republican politician. The motion to grant him the privilege to speak was lost by a vote of 29 to 23. There was excitement. Weir's remarked that a Democrat had been allowed to speak and that he regarded the Republican Party as a friend of the working man. Myers lauded the Republicans amid cries of approval and disapproval. Senator Pinchback, Senator Pinchback, Jesus fucking Christ, (laughs) colored leader of Louisiana, was also denied the privilege of the floor. Nevertheless, the resolutions adopted after much debate, it was said, the highest interest of our colored fellow citizens is with the working men, who, like themselves, are the slaves of capital and politicians. The Negroes, especially the Northern artisans, tried to keep up. Go to a labor union now where a senator is allowed to appear and see if they're not allowed to speak. It will never happen. They told a senator that they could not speak. And given, I don't want to appeal to American power, but this is how American unions work, right? Yeah. And they told a senator, a senator, that he couldn't talk at the union because the, the you know, Negro laborers were Republican aligned. Are you fucking kidding me? Jesus fucking Christ. The Negroes, especially the Northern artisans, tried to keep in touch with the white labor movement. In September 1870, Sella Martin, a colored man, was a, went as a delegate to the colored workers to the World Labor Congress in Paris. In 1871, the International Working Men's Association, with its headquarters in London and under the influence of Karl Marx, began to organize labor in the United States on a large scale and in a parade held in New York in 1871. Negro organizations appeared. The international movement, however, took no real root in America. Even the National Labor Union began losing ground and ceased to be active after 1872. The main activity of the International was in the North. 
They seem to have no dream that the place for its most successful rooting was in new political power of the Southern worker. Negroes, however, increased their attempts to organize and to think in groups. In 1865, an Equal Rights League met in Pennsylvania and tried to influence Negroes to secure real estate and give their sons business education. In the District of Columbia in 1867, a meeting of colored workers took place. They asked Congress to secure equal apportionment of employment to white and colored labor. Their petition was printed and a committee of 15, haha, it's back, was <laughs> appointed to circulate it. In 1868, a similar petition was sent to Congress asking for equal share in work on public improvements authorized by law. There was a state colored convention in Indiana in 1865, another one in Pennsylvania in 1866, and in July 1869, a Negro convention was held in Louisville, Kentucky as a result of the agitation for immigrants workers. At this last convention, there were 250 delegates who discussed political, economic, and educational matters. They asked for the final abolition of slavery, equal education, rights in the courts, equality of taxation, the ratification of the 15th Amendment. They recommended the purchase of land and the learning of trades. A national convention of Negroes met in Washington in January 1869. This convention was more really national than most Negro conventions hitherto. It was not simply a convention of Southern Negroes as that at Louisville, nor of Northern Negroes like the various conventions at Philadelphia and New York. In 1869, Negroes representing a number of trades met in Baltimore in July to form a state organization. Later, colored representatives in that same city urged Negroes to enter the movement for the formation of labor unions in Washington in the Washington Convention. There was a number of colored delegates from the South, including Henry M. Turner, a black political leader of Georgia, and in all, 130 delegates, including many men of intelligence and ability, came together. Frederick Douglass was elected permanent president and resolutions were passed in favor of the Freedmen's Bureau, a national tax for Negro schools, universal suffrage, and the opening of public public land, especially in the South, for Negroes. The Reconstruction policy of Congress was commended and there was an opposition to colonization. This was not primarily a labor convention, but it illustrated the connection in Negroes' minds between politics and labor. Can, they were can, beginning can we rewind that one second? I just want to like enhance. Please. The Reconstruction policy of Congress was commended and there was an opposition to colonization. Yeah. <laughs> As always... Post colonization. That's right. <laughs> this was prime, not primarily a labor convention, but I like this, David, because this dovetails into what you said earlier. Uh, it yeah. was not primarily a labor convention, but it illustrated the connection in the Negroes' minds between politics and labor. Mm -hmm. That connection, that that all of it is political, everything is intertwined, is is reiterated here. They were beginning more and more clearly to see their vote must be used for their economic betterment, and that their right to work and their income depended upon their use of the ballot. They were consequently groping for leadership in industry and voting, both within and without the race. In their conception of the ballot as the means to industrial emancipation, they were ahead of the northern labor movement. But in their knowledge of the lurking dangers of the power of capital, they were far behind. This January convention was followed the same year by a national Negro labor convention sponsored by the Baltimore meeting, which assembled in Washington in December. This had been called by the Negro artisans of the North and was again national in its membership. This National Labor Convention assembled in Union League Hall, Washington, December 1869. There were 159 delegates present, and Isaac Myers called the meeting to order. And we're going to talk about what happened at that meeting next time Ooh, on Mark's Madness. <laughs> I mean, again, it's history, so I don't know how much cliffhangering we can do, but you know, <laughs> you, you've got it. Yeah, we're going to discuss it. that meeting next time. Um, yep. That being said, um, this has been, as we said, Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Yeah, um, yeah, and I do. I do want to discuss some little little outro here on that one. Oh yeah, um, I love it because we kind of had a running theme there uh, of what we were talking about, where it's not just about economics, right? And politics are entwined with economics, and economics are entwined with politics, and and this episode really exemplified that well because of the section of book we were on. But because of that, a lot of the po political talk in the book was talking about the right to vote um, because 
that was kind of the order of the day politically because, you know, the amendments that were being passed. And so I want to be clear when we say politics, we are not confining ourselves to a narrow definition of politics that validates bourgeois democracy or subtler colonial structure. Okay, politics is expansive beyond that. But you have to understand that this is both a political and an economic struggle in all ways at all times. And as I said earlier, that includes all forms of struggle of all of the groups that we are trying to liberate because until everyone is free, none of us are. Also want to say while we're here, so a little bit about, you know, seeing the sausage behind (laughs) how the sausage is made behind the curtain here. Um, We're actually recording this. Yeah, uh, we're actually recording this on Rosa Parks birthday, um, February 4th. And something that that finally made it a little bit into some mainstream, um, even liberal stuff. I've seen a couple mentions in, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times about this uh, over the past few years, which is good. But those articles kind of get in the dust. We've talked about many times how, you know, media propaganda is more about volume than, you know, inclusion, right? They might give the other side of the story once, but they flood you with most of it. Um, So Rosa Parks was kind of, you know, remembered for, you know, honored to be quiet. I mean, we, we talk about like chapter one, paragraph one of state and revolution. And obviously, you know, Lenin meant that for Marx and we shouldn't take that away from the context there. It's applicable for all kinds of revolutionaries. We certainly for not no reason think of uh, Martin Luther King first there, but the ultimate um, example of that is Rosa Parks. She was a hardened organizer. She was someone that stood up for herself. Um, she, you know, had had staved off an attempt, attempted rape at herself. Um, she joined the NAACP. The bus action uh, was nine months after the same action by Claudette Colvin, and both were organized actions uh, by a group she was organizing with. She was in the NAACP. Uh, she was involved in the Scottsboro Boys. Uh, she was involved in getting, I forget the woman's name but there was actually a woman who was a um it was either a rape victim or a murder attempt it was her guard in prison it was a woman in woman's prison and she had killed the guard defending her defending herself and rosa had done organizational work to get the woman acquitted in self-defense and it was like the first time I remember right, it was the first time a black person had been acquitted in self-defense in such a case. So, you know, hardened organizer, and she gets absolutely whitewashed. So do not celebrate the whitewash version of Rosa Parks. Make sure, um, you know, you know, and everyone around you knows who Rosa is. Also, we were just discussing discussing Frederick Douglass's son not being allowed into a union, and Frederick Douglass himself, of course, being president of this Washington Negro Convention at the end of these uh, Negro Conventions. Between this episode and our next release will be Frederick Douglass's birthday on the 20th. And of course, those two birthdays are the primary reason, as much as it, it makes a good joke for, for you know black comedians, and they, they have the room to make this joke about it being the shortest month. It's a good zinger. Uh, February is not Black History Month because it's the shortest month. It's Black History Month because of Rosa Parks and Frederick Douglass. Um, and so we need to make sure we give the proper shout out to that. Much better outro than what I was going to do. Amen. This has been Mark's Madness Pod. Again, we read books. Um, if you would like to contact us about the books we read, you can do so on email. Our email is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Let's say you wanted to contact us on Twitter, a website that is just bad for everybody and we shouldn't use it, but we, we do. We do I and do. we'll continue to do. Um it's it's a it's a hellscape, but there it is. Um you can it's do that. Addiction. We're at we're at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Um let's say you wanted to just have a place where you could have the better parts of Twitter and get the memes and get the fun stuff, but you could leave out all the Nazis and the not so great stuff that you don't enjoy. We'll come to our discord. It's the Mark's madness pod discord. It's just, it's just comrades. We're just hanging out. We're talking, we're, we're making book clubs. We're, we're just doing the fun stuff. Um, we're playing final fantasy 14. We're playing a lot of final fantasy 14. Um, need some escapism nowadays, but, uh, if you would like to join there, the link is in our Twitter bio. If you don't have Twitter, or don't want to access it via that just email us at that marks madness pod at gmail.com and we will absolutely get you a link into our discord um 
that being said, David, it's been a hot second since we disclaimed anybody. Would you like to give us a disclaimer, my friend? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we formed this podcast uh, just because me and Nathan wanted to read some books together. And typically when you're reading theory, you discuss uh, in a political education or a reading group of some kind with an organization. And so, you know, we were having our discussion with each other. That's a good thing to do. We said, what the hell? We're only two people. Let's record it. See if it's shared with more people. And it's kind of become a thing. Uh, and since the inception of that thing, when we've decided to share, decided to share it, our main hope is that you are in your own organizations and you are doing your own reading groups. And hopefully you're doing these works along with us and we can be another voice, another perspective, uh, maybe another place to inject more context to help you better understand that theory and understand, uh, where it was written from, uh, save that. If you're reading the book on your own, because let's say your uh, reading group is doing, you know, shorter works or more pointed works at, at whatever you're organizing towards, uh, we're more than happy to be the reading group for you and, and have that discussion with you. And beyond that, let's say it's either a book like this where we're reading every word and we're kind of an enhanced ebook, uh, or a book that we summarize more and we can be kind of an enhanced, uh, context deep uh, cliff notes, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you. Uh, and we want to make sure that theory is out there to help guide your praxis. Praxis is theory and action. It's all the things you do uh, when you're out there in the streets, education, educate, educating people politically after you provided for their needs, you know, making sure that they can sustainably feed themselves and, and you're giving them food, making sure that, that you're making sure they have hand washing stations and masks and, and all of the supplies they need, making sure they have clothes and socks, um, you know, houses, people, uh, organizing strikes and rent strikes and things along landlords, any form of agitation or any form of survival action um, that you can do, that's praxis, that's theory and action. And without theory guiding your praxis, it's rudderless. It can it can lead astray. It can either lead nowhere or down a bad direction. And of course, theory is completely useless without being put in action. It's completely useless without that praxis. They are tied at the hip. They go hand in hand, and they don't do anything without each other. Hey, man. Thank you all for listening this week. This has been Mark's Madness. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.